Welcome back to the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Angela Decker. Underground history digs into an ickier side of archaeology as host Chelsea Rose visits with two scientists who catalog the mysterious powders, pastes, and liquids found in artifacts like bottles and cans in museum collections. Sometimes these finds are groundbreaking discoveries. Sometimes they're just gross. Archaeologist Mark Warner and chemist Ray von Wandruska joined Chelsea to explain why you shouldn't taste anything in an artifact you find. You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between Jefferson Public Radio and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each episode, we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today, we're going to be discussing the weirdos like myself who get really excited by ancient bottles of gunk and goo and how these disgusting and sometimes dangerous relics from the past can provide important insight into the people and their habits of long ago. I'm joined by University of Idaho archaeology professor Mark Warner and chemistry professor Ray von Ronruska, who are joining me to talk about their recent article, Urine on the Shelves, Odious Materials in Archaeological Collections. So how's that for a catchy title? Ray and Mark, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the show. Hello. <laughs> glad to have you. Thank, glad, to, glad to be on here. <laughs> so we've been sending you stuff for, I, I don't know, close to a decade maybe, maybe more. And I have a standing um, order in my lab. If you see a bottle or a container with something in it, the grosser the better. Don't clean it. Leave it for Ray. And we kind of have a pile always going. But let's start off by talking about how, how did you first start this collaboration, which has pr- proved to be very fruitful if not odorous at times. Um, Mark, was it you that just thought, what is this bottle? I think I'll walk it down to the sure. chemistry department. I'll, I'll start with it. Um, okay. We it actually, it started about 15 years ago, and I had a big project, uh, archaeology project going on up in North Idaho in Sandpoint. And we actually excavated a whole array of things that had gunk on them. Uh, immediately, the thing that came to mind were bottles, but we were also doing other weird weirdnesses, such as uh, excavating a blacksmith shop and so on. So I reached out to Ray to say, hey, we've got this stuff that we'd like to figure out what's in them, what's, what this, what this contents were. And he said, that sounds like a good idea. And so we started bringing bottles to him and then it mushroomed into a variety of other things and Ray you can add whatever colorful details I've left out on this. <laughs> yeah Ray what, what was it what did you think when somebody came with some old artifacts did you immediately oh, I, think uh, you could help? <laughs> well I, I, I expect Mark to do this but uh, okay no, I thought it would be a lot of fun I mean it is most unusual. I'm an analytical chemist and have students here that are working on various things, and we never worked on anything like this. So it was a real interesting idea, and uh, it appealed to to my whole lab uh, to do this. 
Yeah. And with the students, like, do you, at this point that you've been doing this for a while, do you have like a special class or is it just projects they can do throughout the year? I mean, my main um, memory of doing chemistry in school was my partner in the lab sweater catching on fire on the Bunsen burner. So, you know, but I think I would have been totally into an opportunity to, you know, investigate a mystery. So how do you present this to your students? Well, it's 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 basically a set piece. We we uh, we have a course here at the University of Idaho Chemistry Department uh, called Undergraduate Research, and it's a thing. It's a course that students sign up for. Now, the content of the course, in my case, and I have we all have our sections. All the faculty members have their have their sections. Uh, in my case, it's coming to the lab once or twice a week. It depends how many credits you want to earn for it. And uh, uh, work in the lab on artifacts. And the way it works, I, I, I give a student, uh, I have, I have a, well, maybe five, six, seven students, and I give a student an artifact and say, <laughs> go ahead, find out what it is. And <laughs> They work on it, and okay, in the beginning, I have to really, uh, you know, help them along a lot. And don't know what to do, and then we, we work slowly, and they they get into this. They get enthused about it, and they're interested. And after a while, and I mean, you know, maybe a semester, they always come back. They can take this course over and over again, and they t- tend to come back the next semester and the next <laughs> until they finally graduate. And, uh, uh, you know, in the end, they become really good at it. And I don't really have to supervise them much anymore. But, um, yeah, that's, that, that's how it happens. It's, uh, it's essentially a course, and uh, this is the content of the course. And the, 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 the examination, if you will, of it is a report that they write on their, on their particular artifact and they give it to me, and I go over it, and then I send it to people like you. Yeah, and I've got lots of those reports. I was looking for through them recently, and I've seen, you know, like a dozen of your students present these at professional conferences, and they always just knock it out of the park. They do great. But I'm assuming that most of them don't go on to be archaeologists. They probably go on to do fancy things that earns more money. But this really offers an opportunity to kind of walk through a lot of the different types of tests and, you know, mad scientist kind of stuff you do in a chemistry lab. Is that right? I mean, the idea is you're like, how do you test for carbon or whatever? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a excellent learning experience for these students because the techniques that we use in themselves are useful techniques in in a chemist's life. We're not archaeologists. I mean, I want to make that really clear. We are chemists, but, um, uh, learning about the many different techniques that we use in the lab is not trivial, and uh, it can be somewhat challenging if it's if it's shall we say clothed into this kind of a project, which is in itself appealing, interesting, makes it so much more fun for the students to actually work on it, and uh, and in doing so, learn the. Uh, learn the techniques and learn how to approach an analytical problem. I mean, what do you do if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, look at this, I got a bottle with some smelly gunk in it. 
can you figure out what it is? <laughs> I mean, that's, it's, it's not trivial. And uh, they learn how to do this. And um, many of these students, by the way, are what we have an, an option in our degree. This is for the bachelor's degree, which is called forensics. And uh, the, the work we do is all known although not strictly forensic chemistry, it is very closely related. It is th that kind of work, and students just love to do it. Yeah, I can imagine that is a good skill. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm joined by chemists and archaeologists from the University of Idaho who have been teaming up with folks from across the U.S. to help them figure out what the mysterious liquids, slimes, and powders they are digging up actually are. And, Mark, I want to ask you a question about your article. I was really surprised, of course, um, you had me at urine in the title. I was like, what is this? <laughs> But it really is about, like, raising the awareness of safety of some of these items um, and some of the ways in which we might not realize we're exposing ourselves to things that could be harmful. I know in my lab, you know, we, we think about asbestos, we think about mercury, particularly in the form of, like, if it's in a thermometer. But there's lots of other things people might come in contact with that they need to be aware of. Do you want to speak a little bit to that and how that, you know, at what point you realized, hey, I think I need to alert my colleagues to this? Well, sure. I think one of this is it's also about kind of uh, understanding that, you know, archaeologists have probably billions of artifacts sitting on shelves throughout throughout the world. And a lot of that stuff's very well analyzed, but a lot of it isn't. And, you know, the vast majority of the stuff we've been working with have been things that have been sitting on shelves. In other words, things that haven't been on the ground that aren't coming right, right straight from an excavation, but are they're saying, hey, we've got to analyze this stuff that's been sitting here. So what Ray and I, what, what came out of this was, you know, we've been doing this for so long that we've got this kind of accumulation of kind of uh, samples that are really kind of distinctive. And we so basically said, let's, let's compile these to talk about some case studies of kind of the, the icky things that are on the shelves that archaeologists don't think about. And, you know, I think the reality is for many archaeologists, you're, you're not focused on the contents of the bottle, but you're focused on the bottle itself. And you don't think about the implications of, you know, maybe the health and safety imp implications of what you're playing with. Now, in most cases, and, I, you know, I, I emphasize this, this This should not be an article that's, like, caused a great alarm. I mean, we've done... <laughs> Still become an archaeologist, people out there that are... <laughs> don't get turned right. off. <laughs> no, I mean, we've done four or 500 um, objects over the years that Ray's lab has. And, you know, I think there's only one that would be truly, a, like, a, a immediate health issue uh, that, you know that people would like literally you'd better talk to your, your <laughs> environmental safety people. Um, in most cases, it's just like, don't, don't be dumb about what you're working with. Don't sit there and, you know, take a swill out of this pharmaceutical bottle that you just excavated or have been sitting on the shelf because that is, <laughs> mm -hmm. that is not good behavior. Um, and being cognizant of what you have, I think, is the is the important message with this because 
most of the times archaeologists get so many materials they just were going to catalog it and sit it on the shelf and not think about it. And I, I mean, think some of these yeah. some of these were 60 years old. I mean, been sitting on the shelves for since the 1960s. Wow. Wow. And, you know, since most of the listeners probably aren't going to get a chance to read your, you know, your article, which I did enjoy, you know, one of my favorite anecdotes in there, of course, is the namesake of the article is the bottle of quote unquote whiskey, (laughs) which you had at the Burke, found from the Burke Museum in Seattle, Mm -hmm. which ended up being pee. So, you know, I love thinking about, uh, you know, the person who used it to like save a trip to the outhouse at night or something, if they only knew where it would end up. So tell us a little bit about how surprising that was. Cause I, you know, you hear a lot about people. We found like the oldest bottle of whiskey. We should try it. You know, so it was the Burke museum. Were they shocked? Had some of their staff like contemplated taking a little swig? Like, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't talked at length with the folks in the, in the museum. And I, and I think to give the Burke's credit, uh, when we were writing this article, we sort of said, you know, we can, we can kind of be vague about, where these materials are coming from, and they said, "No, nope, you know, look, feel, identify that it was on our shelves, and you know, it's something we can laugh about, and it's a a good lesson to be learned about saying, let's make sure we know what we're storing before <laughs> we just put it on the shelf." Um, but I, you know, I emphasize that the reality of a lot of archaeology is that of you've got something you may not immediately have the budget to test it, you may not have uh, the resources, so you do put it on the shelf, and then people forget about it. Uh, and you know, in this case, this was a project that had been sitting there for I think ten to fifteen years as well. <laughs> um, and you know, they were ple- I mean, they were pleased to get the information. I mean, I think that's the. At the end of the day, what Ray is doing with this testing is getting a lot of information to a lot of archaeologists that don't, that wouldn't otherwise have that information. So the million-dollar um, question: Did they leave the contents in there? Did they dump it out? What? How does that um, information impact their decision making going forward with that object? <laughs> I haven't followed up to find out exactly. <laughs> Uh, however, you know, once you know what an object is, that opens up other research questions. For sure. Maybe not in the world of archaeology, <laughs> but <laughs> it certainly would potentially open up the door to, to other other projects, which, you know, I don't know what those would be offhand, but uh, certainly a urologist might have some ideas yeah, about that. Yeah, to see health maybe from the, the sample. That's yeah. true. That's true. You're listening to Underground History. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, speaking with Mark Warner and Ray Von Ronruska from the University of Idaho about some of the quirky things people did in the past. And we left you hanging before the break talking about a bottle at the Burke Museum that was a whiskey bottle containing pee. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that, like the challenge of being an archaeologist and how we interpret what the artifacts actually mean. So the bottle really was a whiskey bottle. And a lot of times we would find these things empty and we would interpret them as, you know, fine champagne or the best whiskey or whatever. But by the time it makes itself into the archaeological record, a lot of these artifacts might have had several iterations of of function. And so, 
you know, to me, that's one of the really interesting things and important things about this is how it gets us to the objective that we always have, which is the artifacts are a means to the end, the people. So are there other things that you've been surprised about that have made you rethink how we classify types of artifacts? Or is it more just kind of proving things that we would normally assume? Can you speak a little to that, Mark? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I, th- I think one of the things to think about this this work that we're doing is kind of there's two parts to it. I mean, the first part is the immediate analysis of the object, and the ob- and that that is really useful for whatever archaeologist has sent us the materials or whatever because they don't know what's in there, but then thanks to Ray's work, they do know. Um, the second part is since we've been doing this for long, synthesizing some of this data, and that and this this odious materials. Article was one example of that, but another one that we probably need to write, and Ray and I have been talking about over years, for years, is uh, looking at kind of repurposing of materials, repurposing of uh, objects, and the whiskey bottle is a great example of that. And if you stop and think about behavior in your world. People do this all the time. You go to the garage and you have your mason jar that is now holding nails or your old mustard jar that is holding screws or you using something for other purposes than it was originally intended. And that's another theme that Ray and I need to sort of put our heads together and, and look at in more detail. I mean, other examples in the past that I can think of, and Ray can jump in on this as well, is we had a uh, another whiskey bottle that was actually used to keep glue, I think, uh, that was from a Southern Idaho project. Um, did a couple of three other examples of uh, mason jar lids used as, uh, paint, uh, basically, uh, paint holders, uh, a variety of things along those lines. Yeah, and uh, we we had that um, bottom of a a Chinese porcelain bowl that had seal paste, like stamp paste, in it that Ray helped us identify. That was that was really cool from Jacksonville. Yeah, and that's a that's a fun. I mean, that's the that's the fun stuff is because you're getting at unexpected behaviors that nobody writes about mm-hmm. in in their diaries or anything like that. It's like, okay, look, here's how people are managing daily life, and you know, in this case, one of them was. I'm saving a trip to the outhouse at night by using my whiskey bottle. <laughs> and that's a really humanizing way to connect to the past. And one of the other things that comes to mind immediately is those like cookie tins that are always have like sewing collections in them and stuff. Like people might find the tin mm-hmm. and sewing stuff and not really associate them together if they didn't kind of know that context. So, yep. Yeah. And so, you know, I know archaeochemistry is a thing that, that people have been doing. And usually you hear about it, or his, I used to hear about it more of like, testing patent medicines or, you know, and things and finding out it was just alcohol, not actually the cure-all or whatever. But is, Ray, is your work starting to kind of develop some some methodologies or some some ways that you can create a framework to help other, like, chemistry labs or other people that would want to specialize this um, to kind of create shortcuts or standardize the practice for analyzing archaeological or historical materials? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, there, there are so many examples of that. For instance, Chinese goods, if something comes in a Chinese medicine vial, you have a fair idea what it could be. Mm-hmm. You know, and if it's red, you have a better idea still, and you probably think it probably is cinnabar, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is mercury sulfide and is a, is a, uh, a, a mercury ore that the 
in Chinese medicine is used uh, and still was and still is used uh, as a as as a medicine and taken internally, which some of which makes you kind of you <laughs> gasp that they do the, that. People in the olden days did these things, especially with medicines and cosmetics. Uh, and, yeah, because um, there's also yeah, but, different types of mercury in, like, cosmetics to make skin whiter and something like that, right? Well, in, like, there's, Western there's, cosmetics? there's the, the famous example. One of the earlier examples we had is uh, that they, in the late 1800s, uh, uh, applied um, a, a compound called calomel, a mercurous chloride, to the skin as a, basically a, a cosmetic to make it, 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 it has a lightish color and to give it a, a, a pearly glow. That's what the advertisement says, a pearly glow. And um, it, it, re- it really made us gasp and we said, my goodness, what did they do? <laughs> Put mercury on their faces. Oh. And, but yeah, you, 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 you develop um, an idea what things could be, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you, simply an eye for, for uh, certain types of compounds. This is, and also on the, in the initial analysis, when you do the analysis, you find certain materials in the contents. You say, well, this indicates that it is probably a cosmetic. Mm-hmm. Or uh, like with uh, urine in a bottle, we found urea in it, and we found uh, cholesterol in it. And you say, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that is urine. It ain't whiskey. And um, uh, so you, you develop an eye for it. And um, uh, so usually I've come to a point where I can look at something and get a pretty good idea what direction to go. Because otherwise, if you don't have that, you have, uh, uh, often you don't have much of a provenance in the, in the, in the, in the materials at all. I mean, simply it was dug up somewhere or came from some shelf and they have further, no, no further idea what it may have been. And usually you look, you look at it, it's chemical consistency. It's, um, of course, is it a liquid? Is it a solid? Is it hard? Is it soft? Yeah, what what color is it? How does it smell? Does it still smell? And that kind of thing. Yeah. And you develop you develop an eye for or nose for, <laughs> uh, for the uh, what it, what it could be. And then you have your instrumental techniques. You know, you take spectra and you do chromatography. You do uh, electromicroscopy and you do all kinds of things. And uh, of course, the nice thing for us is also, as chemists, again, a nice thing is that the students actually get involved in some of the history. Mm-hmm. And not only do they do the analysis, as you may have, may have seen in the various reports that you got, we do add some what it could have been used for. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you find a little bottle full of sulfur, what could that possibly have been used for? And we, uh, we looked through... Uh, uh, you know, the possibilities and came up with the conclusion that this bottle of sulfur, a little milk bottle filled with solid sulfur, was probably used to combat ringworm in cattle. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And why did it have little lumps in it, little brown lumps? Mm-hmm. Think, think, think. They applied it to the cattle, to the cow, to the calf in the stable rubbed it on, it fell on the ground, they scooped it up, and guess what else was in the, on the ground? Some of the cattle droppings. <laughs> so they made it into the bottle. And uh, 
So now we got, we got a little story going with it, okay? This this material that you didn't know what it was, it's sulfur. It was probably used for ringworm, for ringworm medication. And uh, it was used before, and a little bit of... Uh, of cow manure got mixed up in it. Yeah, oh my gosh, that's a good little moment in time you get a witness. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today we are talking about the fun and disgusting things encountered on museum shelves and in archaeological sites. And, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the fun things that you've done to help us with our, you know, collections regionally. So, like you mentioned, uh, we did find the stamp paste and some traditional Chinese medicines from Jacksonville, um, from Peter Britt, one of our well-known artists, a photographer in the region. Um, I remember that we sent you this mysterious like metal thing that was a an uh, oil candle or something do you remember that it was like uh, oh yeah yeah it was uh, <laughs> when we got it first the, the first notion was that it was uh, an uh, an opium pipe uh-huh and then uh um we we went into it some and we we analyzed it because there's some Simple mechanical observation is also part of it, yeah. and uh, and so we looked at it, and we did some analysis on this and that, and came to the conclusion that it was in fact a little oil lamp. Yeah, and um, as such, it could have been, it could have been part of a of of of, of an opium setup. We, we get these quite often from you know the late 1800s. Uh, it could have been, but it could have just been a lamp. Yeah, and this one was not from the Chinatown. This was from Peter Britt's collection, and I. I think it was oh, like did, it never came from a Chinatown. Well, in yeah. that case, it was probably just a lamp, right? Yeah, yeah it could have been a, a like a little oil lamp. And I know from another site in Jacksonville, um, I mean in Ashland, we sent tons of bottles, and there was shampoo and um, different like shoe polish. I'm trying to think of what else there was, all sorts of stuff. But you know, in addition, because I went through, oh, paint was another one, like. Tempera paint or tempera paint, however you say that? Yeah, I, I, I remember the tempera paint. I, I mean, I don't remember. You know, we've done over 500. <laughs> yeah, you don't five. remember all It's a bit hard to pick them all out <laughs> that were done 10 years ago. So, But, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do remember the tempera paint, yeah. You yeah. know, and going through all the different reports you've sent over the year, one of the other things that stands out is how often – it was just rust or dirt or kind of a bust. So, you oh, know, yeah. how often are the samples like really interesting and cool? And how often are they like, eh, well, we, we don't know what it is, but it's probably just dirt or whatever. 50-50. Uh, Again, you, you have a, a bottle that has some crumbly stuff in a bo- and, and you look at it and uh, you say, well, that looks like dirt. And then let's let's make sure. And then we take what's called an infrared spectrum of it, and we get some big absorption peaks in a particular place, and we say, it's dirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. And often that happens. Uh, rust is another one, rust from bottle ca- uh, caps, that kind of thing, you know, that run into and then make mm-hmm. it all nice and kind of yellow and orange, and you think, oh, that's beautiful. Nah, it's just rust from the cap. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but uh, at other times, you know, you find some little crumble somewhere, and you say you put them in acid, and you say, hey, they bubble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why would that be? You know, and then the whole thing develops. What could it be? And uh, what initially looked like dirt may, in fact, be some kind of, for instance, traditional traditional Chinese medicine or uh, some kind of other compound that actually had a real use. Uh-huh. And for which a little bit was left in that bottle and that can 
and uh, you can kind of imagine how they back in the day used it. Uh, but the, the fun thing to, uh, for us is always that, you know, not so long ago in human history, uh, the, the, the notion of safety and uh, 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 toxins and so on was not very well developed. Mm-hmm. And they just, <laughs> you know, it, made, it, it, it makes us, it gives us a great surprise to see what they used for foods, for uh, uh, medicines, topical and internal, and uh, uh, what kind of, I mean, there's a whole different society, of course, which for us as chemists, we're not nearly as aware of as you, yeah. as archaeologists. Can we also officially plug that where this article is at? It's sure, please, please. It's in. It is. It is published. It just came out in Advances in Archaeological Practice, which is a journal of the Society for American Archaeology, and it is available as an open access article. So anybody who wants to find it can go read it and download it as, at any at their convenience. We will put it in the show notes, and that's a great um, note to wrap up on. And thank you both so much for talking with me today. This has been so fun. You've been listening to Underground History. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose. Our producers are Angela Decker and Charlie Zimmerman. Mark and Ray, thanks again. And I'm really going to try to send you a package of mysterious and and not too toxic um, items for you to test soon. So thanks again. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Always always enjoy chatting with you, Chelsea. Good. Likewise. Likewise. Take care. And that's it for today's exchange. JeffExchange.org is our website where you can find these stories and more or subscribe to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Zach Beagle is our engineer today. Thank you, Zach. Our theme music is composed by Maxwell and Terry Longshore. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.